Two summers ago, I'm on my way to work. Beautiful sunny day out. Birds were chirping. The city had that Friday buzzy feeling to it. I was feeling good. I had a little pep to my step. It was really hot too that day. I was wearing shorts and these brand new pair of kicks. A pair of Nike Air Max 90 OG infrareds. You know, I really liked them. I finally got my hands on them. It's definitely one of my top five sneakers of all time. Now, I'm not a sneakerhead at all, but, you know, whether you're a sneakerhead or not, as we all know, you can tell a lot about a person's shoes. Well, I'm always said it. There's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. Where they going. Where they been. So at that time, my office was in Soho. There was this deli that I walked past every day. From time to time, I would look inside as I walked by to see how long the line was. Sometimes, I would crave a bacon, egg, and cheese on a toasted everything bagel. But there was always a long line, so I just continued on walking by. But on this day, I really wanted breakfast, so I went in, I got on that ridiculous line, and I placed my order. And then I get on another long line to pay for my order. As I'm waiting on this line, a large man, about 6'5", he walks in. He's looking rough, just, just sloppy, sweating, just looking, you know, like he had a rough morning. He walks by me, and all I hear is splat. You know that sound that a ketchup packet makes when you step on it? That sound. I didn't notice right away, but I looked down, and my left foot was covered in ketchup. Kicks ruined. Bacon, egg, and cheese on a toasted everything bagel ruined. My day ruined. I looked back at the dude, who also didn't notice what he had done, and I let him have it. I went all Joe Pesci on him. You shit-kicking, stinky, horseman, horse-smelling motherfucker, you! Nah, I'm just playing. I let it slide. The lady behind me handed me some, handed me some napkins. I wiped myself off, and I left. I walked by the deli every day for another year or so, and I never went in again. I guess every pair of shoes has its story. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I got my new kicks on. I walked into this deli and ruined. My whole left shoe was ruined, full of ketchup. My, I had shorts on, ketchup all over the place. And the dude didn't even realize what he did, man. He, I was tight. I was tight, but you know how you get tight and you don't... You, you don't end up doing anything? It's like, you're so mad. In the anger. Yeah, it's like, you, I mean, I'm not like I would've done anything anyway, but it's like, he didn't even realize what he did. And then I just, I just looked at my shoe and just, I just left. I didn't even get my, I didn't even get my, my bacon and cheese. The soles of my shoes have worn down on the path I've treaded. I this is episode four of the Hail Caesar podcast. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking about sneaker culture. You just heard my story about how my favorite pair of sneakers got ruined. We have a lot more in store for you today. Whether or not you're a sneakerhead, I don't think that matters. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Um, I'll still be joined by Elizabeth Semelhack. She's the senior curator at the Battershoe Museum in Toronto. She is a true historian on footwear and will give us a bit of a history lesson on the rise of sneaker culture. Uh, we're also sharing some snippets from Josh Luber's TED Talk. He is the founder of StockX, uh, which is the safest and quickest, most effective way to buy and sell 100% authentic sneakers. Essentially, it's a sneaker stock market, a live bid and ask marketplace. It's a really cool site. I even searched for some of my sneakers that I own to see how much they're worth. Who knows? Maybe I can make a little money. So uh, stay tuned. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, here we go. 
Joining me now is Elizabeth Samohek. She's the senior curator at the Batashu Museum in Toronto. She's also the author of Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture, a book that travels all the way back to the mid-19th century, showcasing sneakers like the spike running shoe from the 1860s, all the way up to present-day cultural iconic kicks like the Air Jordans and the Air Force Ones. Great. So I guess we can just start a little bit. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Elizabeth. I know you're the senior curator at the Battershoe Museum in Toronto. Just tell us a bit about the, about your, your role and what you do there. So I am the senior curator here at the Battershoe Museum. I've been here since 2000. And I think what I love the most about my job is that footwear, although clearly it's so central to our lives every day. You know, we all choose the right shoes to wear and have to wear shoes. Um, it's a very understudied form of fashion. And so I'm able to actually engage with a lot of original research and and it's been one of the joys of my life to try to unravel why we do make the footwear choices that we do. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I was just talking a, a bit about that with my friends and just sharing different stories about certain sneakers that, that uh, you know, whether I couldn't get my hands on as, as, as when I was younger or just sneakers mm-hmm. that, I, that, I, that I loved and got over and over again just because I, I love them so much. And, and just there's, certain, there's a certain connection that you, you develop with what you put on your feet, which is pretty amazing <laughs> if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, and so, I, you know, I think that a lot of people assume that, you know, if I stopped them on the street and said, what's the f- purpose of shoes or footwear, many people would respond to protect your foot. But the reality is that we make very emotional choices about what we wear. We're not allowed to wear some shoes. Um, for example, men in general aren't encouraged to wear high heels in today's culture. Uh, and so there are many things that drive our footwear choices and as well as drive our emotional attachment to the shoes that we ultimately do choose. Right, 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 correct. And when did you become so fascinated with just sneakers in general and, and, and the sneaker culture and why? And what prompted you to, to not just write the book, but to also um, create an, an exhibit for it? Well, I've been working on the history of the high heel uh, since 2001. And one of the things that I found really fascinating about the high heel was that it was one of these um, forms of dress that people saw kind of. Um, you know, you'd see somebody in a great pair of heels and describe that they're, or say to the person, that's beautiful, or you look hot. But nobody was seeing the impracticality of it, and where did it come from, and why do only half of us wear it? And so I started working on the history of the high heel, and it was, in the, as I said, in the early 2000s. And it was at a time when there was a lot of discussion about um, girl power or female power being linked to basically um, sexual power, and the high heel was seen as a quote-unquote power tool. And I began to notice in this sort of heated shoeaholic um, culture or moment that when I would go to cocktail parties or someone would find out what I did for a living, they would assume that because I worked at a shoe museum that it was a museum for women. (laughs) And I thought that this was unusual given that we don't – convey gender in our society by men going barefoot and women wearing shoes. And so I thought maybe the time was right to turn my attention to sneakers and think about sneakers, sneaker culture, and constructions of masculinity. Wow. Yeah. And um, so let me get the timeline right. So did the book happen before the exhibit or was it like simultaneously? 
No, actually, the exhibit happened first. It was here at the Badashi Museum in 2013 to 2014. And at that time, I was just thinking that this exhibit would be here at our museum. But there was the opportunity to work with the American Federation of Arts in New York, and they were willing to take on this rather cumbersome project and make it into a traveling exhibition. And so when it was decided that it could travel, I had the opportunity to expand the exhibition because the other museums, such as the Brooklyn Museum, mm-hmm. uh, the High in Atlanta, it's currently at the Oakland Museum, w- had bigger spaces, and so I could add more shoes. And so uh, the exhibition, as it began to grow, it was decided that it also needed a book. And so right. both, so so the book was happening simultaneous to this, and debuted at the same time that the exhibition opened at the Brooklyn Museum in the summer of 2015. Right, right. Speaking of that, um, so yeah, so the so the exhibit was in Brooklyn, my hometown. So um, just, just how, you know, what kind of reception did you get from, um, you know, museum goers? What kind of vibe did you pick up from, from sneaker fans or shoe fans in general um, being in Brooklyn? Well, when I was there for the opening, you know, it was extremely high energy. I thought that, uh, you know, one of the, anyway, I, th- I thought that the reception was amazing. Um, I was so thrilled to see so many people. I think that one of the lessons that I learned or I took away from doing this exhibition is that sneakerheads themselves are already historians. And I have never in my life worked with a set of museum visitors who are so delightful to to have come into your exhibition because these are individuals who want to look at every single shoe from multiple angles, read every single label, tweet about it, Instagram it, um, have <laughs> conversations about it. And so the, the level of engagement um, with the artifacts, with the exhibition has been so strong that it, it it's been amazing. Um, Having said that, I think that one of the biggest challenges or one of the things maybe I feared the most about doing this exhibition is that curation is an exercise in constriction or restriction. You know, I when I had the exhibition here, I could only cram into my space 122 sneakers. Mm-hmm. It's now grown to almost 170 sneakers, but even then, there are fundamental shoes that are missing that I haven't been able to get my hands on. You know, <laughs> the Air Max 90 that I'm desperate for hasn't materialized. Um, there are shoes that some people may have wanted to see that I couldn't find. And so the editing process of trying to limit the number of shoes that I could put into the exhibition and then the the difficulty, which is compounded by how can I get my hands on those desired sneakers, um, you know, was, was a challenge. And so Every sneaker that I put into the exhibition, I put in for a reason, but there are so many more that I wish I could have included. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's such a, you know, there's so much dedication that goes goes into, uh, you know, not just sneakerheads, but people just, like, have so much passion for this stuff. And, 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 like, yeah, I was even talking, like, there was the same, the Air Max 90s, that they, I think they were re-released by Nike a couple of weekends ago, and I tried to get my hands yeah. on them, and, and I, yeah, I couldn't. I, you know, it was, like, a raffle, and I had to wait online, and I'm not that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Of dedicated and to the craft. one of the things, too, that I really tried to do, I wasn't completely successful with every single shoe, but I wanted to have the original 
Mm. You know, I didn't want to have right. retros. And so it was really important for me that people could see, you know, the closest to the original uh, Converse All-Star that we could find. The, the you know, the original Air Jordan 1 from the Nike archives, not a retro. And so I think one of the important things about museums is that they allow people to see rare and um, original objects. Right. And how did you how did you get your hands on those uh, original sneakers? Like, um, you know, they're obviously very exclusive, ultra exclusive sneakers. They're difficult to get. Like, did, <laughs> did Nike get involved? Like, what, what was some of the difficulties that you ran into? Well, you know, when I decided to do the exhibition, I um, gathered around me a group of advisors, including Mayan Regendron and D. Wells and uh, John Walcott from here in Toronto. And... Um, we sort of created a list of what would be the top sneakers that had to be included in this exhibition. One of the things I really wanted was because I was going to be telling the history of the sneaker from the, you know, the vulcanization of rubber all the way up to today, I wanted to make sure that I had hmm. uh, iconic shoes from every um, stage as the sneaker developed. And so with sort of armed with this ideal list, then I just became really obnoxious. I felt like I was becoming Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory, just banging on everybody's <laughs> door over and over and over again, begging and begging. Because um, we, the other part of this story is that we don't collect sneakers here at this museum. So with the exception of the few pairs that I did have access to from our collection, I had to borrow everything. I had worked with Converse before I'd worked with Adidas before, and so that was a you know they they knew who I was and right. uh, opened the door. Um, I started by contacting Run DMC, uh, and when they uh, indicated that they were willing to participate, I then contacted Christian Louboutin's people, and they said that he was willing to participate, and so I got very positive reactions very very early on, right. and that just encouraged me to continue calling. And so I just, uh, like I said, tried to make a nuisance of myself with as many different collectors as I could. And ultimately, over 38 lenders uh, lent shoes to the exhibition. So yeah, so just like the rise of sneaker culture, I mean, it had to start somewhere. When when did it <laughs> when did it begin in terms of just like the fandom that we see now with sneakers? Was it, was it in the mid-80s with Michael Jordan and Nike or... You know, I'm sure that had a big influence on it. What, what, what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I see more what happens in the mid-'80s as uh, this watershed moment that brings what was already a maturing sneaker culture to a much wider audience. And so one of the things that I tried to, tried to do in the exhibition and in the book is to show how the sneaker has been important uh, for various audiences since its innovation in the sort of mid 19th century. And so what, you know, one of the first myths that I wanted to, uh, confront was this idea that when the sneaker first debuted, it was an item that was just, you know, sort of a humble shoe, a humble sports shoe, because the truth of the matter is, is that when the sneaker first came out, one rubber itself was a very expensive 
product. It was difficult to get. It was difficult to work with. Um, rubber galoshes, rubber overshoes, cost five times the pair of leather shoes. And so when I say that rubber was expensive, it really was. It was a luxury item. And in addition, the earliest sneakers were meant to be or were first sort of consumed by the privileged few who actually had the time to play. Mm-hmm. We forget because unions have given us, uh, you know, the 40-hour work week and we get our weekends off, but the majority of people worked pretty much nonstop. And so even having the time to play was itself a signifier of privilege. And then in addition, the ability to have specialized footwear for your playtime meant that the sneakers themselves were conveying a great deal about status. Hmm. Obviously, the sneaker loses its status as industrialization makes sneaker production uh, increasingly inexpensive, but... By the 1930s, I argue in the book and in the exhibition, when physical culture or the pursuit of exercise becomes a real focus of uh, nations around the world as they are basically gearing up for World War II and they want their citizenry to be fit to fight the new war, um, the sneaker in many ways is democratized at the height of fascism. And after World War II, sneakers are so inexpensive to make, you know, synthetic rubbers have been invented, production levels reach all-time high, and the sneaker becomes just the, the footwear of summer or the footwear of childhood, and it takes the 1970s to reinstate the status sneaker. And so hmm. what happens with the me generation is that they are focused not on exercising in service to the state or they're not exercising for moral reasons, which had sort of driven exercise in the second half of the 19th century. Instead, they're driven by these ideas of personal best. So jogging, running marathons, playing competitive tennis, these are the kinds of sports that a lot of people begin to pursue. And and as part of this um, presentation of personal best, they also begin to consume elite athlete-level footwear. And so Adidas and Puma benefit from this, or really Adidas, not Puma yet, Um, (laughs) and uh, Nike gets into the game in 72. And so as these individuals who are purchasing these high-level shoes begin to wear them uh, for exercise, but then also find that they're eye-catching and that they can wear them for athleisure. You see them in discos. And the next thing you know, the humble, quote-unquote, humble sneaker has is returned to an item of status. Right, not so humble but anymore. <laughs> even more importantly, what's happening within urban environments is that street ball, um, the NBA is recruiting a lot of guys who are phenomenal street ball players because it looks great on television. And these guys, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Walt Frazier, they begin to get sneaker endorsements from German companies, Puma, Adidas. And those shoes uh, become sort of expressions of local pride and become central to urban fashion. So all of these things are colliding together in the 70s, Hmm. paving the way for what's going to happen in the 80s. Wow, that's that's quite the history lesson. There, I have a bunch of uh, friends who are so-called sneakerheads. I'm gonna quiz them on some of this stuff because that was <laughs> that was pretty uh, pretty incredible, I mean, And then to see to see where the where the sneaker well sneaker culture is now. I mean, is there a fear where it's not so much of a culture now and it's more of a trend, given the fact that you know they're not as exclusive? Where if anyone that really 
um, wants to get a pair of sneakers, they can they can with with the reselling marketplace and all that stuff. Is there is there is there fear that you, you, the whole sneaker culture is losing losing that that culture? Well, you know, I do think that it's true. The sneaker culture or sneaker fashion, let's maybe term it that, yeah. uh, has become incredibly widespread. Yeah, absolutely. And a number of things, I think, have happened. One is, you know, I get asked to define sneaker culture quite a bit, and I, I really struggle with how to define it. But I think the maybe the best explanation for it is that those who are truly involved in the culture – understand its vocabulary and so and, and its vocabulary of style so that if somebody says these are original threes everybody th those who would know what that would mean would be maybe more uh uh intimately involved within the social meaning and function of certain sneakers However, now so many uh, companies and designers are getting into the sneaker game that it could feel to many that the whole culture itself is being diluted or co-opted. Yeah. And certainly I think there's an element of truth to that. However, I also see that one of the functions that sneakers um, is serving is to allow men or inculcate men, depending on the angle that you want to look at it, into a fashion or into the fashion system, whereby um, women, for example, have historically been required to make sure that we don't show up in the same outfit at work or at a dinner party. Mm. That we every day we wear something very different from our peers as a means of expressing our individuality. And so sneaker culture or sneakers uh, are likewise encouraging men to wear different pairs so that they don't show up at the office or <laughs> at a party in the exact same sneakers as everybody else. And so while this is in part um, allowing men greater self-expression through fashion, it is also encouraging more and more companies to offer a wider variety of sneakers. Right. And so, it, you know, it becomes a snowball effect. I would say that women's fashion hasn't disappeared because there are so many different types of um, clothing choices out there. And likewise, I think sneakers are, are fulfilling this really interesting um, shifting role for men in relation to fashion. So I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But in terms of purist um, sneaker heads who are really very focused on 70s, 80s, and to some degrees, early 90s footwear, uh, this is a moment of dramatic change. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, um, and I mean, even with like guys like Kanye West, I think you can you can pretty much make the case that you know sneakers was his avenue towards towards fashion and what helped him get into fashion. Correct. Right, right now. Yeah, but, yeah. And I on. do think that because we we have this really long history, right, of men ignoring fashion or men sort of hiding behind the the uniform of uh, uniformity, <laughs> which is the business suit uh, in the workplace, certainly sn sneaker-wearing men signal that, that not only are men being um, – participating more within fashion, but who is the idealized man and how, and what success looks like is also changing radically. Yeah, I hope so. Cause I love, I love wearing uh, <laughs> sneakers uh, to work. And, um, you know, I have some shoes there, but I'm much, much rather wear some, some nice, some nice sneakers and I'm not a sneakerhead by no mean, 
But uh, yeah, it's just much, much comfortable for me, I think. Um, what about you? Do you have any pair of uh, favorite pair of sneakers that, that you love to wear or that you, what, what are your favorite pair of sneakers? I do get asked that question a lot about all the shoes that I own. And my general answer is I research footwear. Who has the time to shop? Um, But having said that, I do obviously have some sneakers that I like quite a bit. I have a very soft spot for the um, Adidas Superstar. I have a pair of Berger Vivier sneakers that I like quite a bit. And, you know. Have yes. some gazelles. I what I really don't have too much of in my collection are Nikes. Surprisingly, <laughs> I think that's all. That's all I have. I have maybe one a pair, one pair of Adidas. I think. Um, yeah, I don't really know if I could pull yeah. off a pair of Air Jordans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, this was really this was really cool though, Elizabeth. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your knowledge uh, about about the sneaker culture and, and the sneaker game. Um, um, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Right. Bye bye. This is the Air Jordan 3 Black Cement. This might be the most important sneaker in history. First released in 1988, this is the shoe that started Nike marketing as we know it. This is the shoe that propelled the entire Air Jordan lineage and perhaps saved Nike. The Air Jordan 3 Black Cement did for sneakers what the iPhone did for phones. It's been re-released four times. Every celebrity's been seen wearing it. There's a site about what to wear with the black cement. It's been right under your nose for decades, and you never look down. And right about now, most of you are probably thinking, sneakers? (laughs) Yes. Yes, sneakers. What are your favorite pair of sneakers, Al, that you ever had? Best pair of sneakers. Your favorite. I think I know them, too. I think I know them. Me, too. I got, I got. There's definitely two that, I, that they, they rank next to each other. I think which one were you? Which one are you thinking? Flights. You like always had those flights on. I, I love flights, like the Scottie Pippen flights. <clears throat> exactly. I love the Scottie Pippen flights, and the CB four. I was about to say the Barclays. The yeah. Barclays. Barclays. Yeah, those were those were ones I never could get my hands on too. <clears throat> I, I always wanted those, man. Never. That was that was the my first pair of sneakers that I spent hundred and sixty dollars on. And that's because it was sold out. I waited your mom was, gave you that money? You nah, that money? I got it. I got your mom, it. My mom wasn't trying to spend no buck 60, especially when we was younger. Nah. But remember, the Barclays, we 36, 37. The Barclays came out around the mid-90s. 95. Yeah. yeah. That was the big it was year. Right, no, it was the, like 93, right, when he yeah, won MVP? 93, 94. Yeah. You know, we already had the summer job, getting a little money. It was good. I didn't mind spending the hundred and sixty dollars on those. Yeah, those were cool kicks. And they were I mean, I never played ball with them from what I hear. They were good they were good ball shoes. Well, I bought them again and I started playing ball on the old ones. That was the only those those, those classic that I've re bought. Cause I remember playing ball. Like see, there wasn't no ball shoes for me. It was just like I had my sneaker <laughs> shoes and I would play ball in those same shoes. I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> you with know those. what I'm saying? So I always had like dunks in, in high school. So those were the worst kind of sneakers to play ball in, man. Dunks. So 
That's what I was playing balling. What about you, E? What's your favorite? What's the favorite shoe you ever had, or maybe your, the fa- one shoe that you never got your hands on? Well, I always got my hands on something. My sister had the hookup. My sister was the plug. That's right. Yeah, she used to work at Nike, Nike Town. She was the plug. So I was never. If I wanted something at, at a certain age, mm-hmm. but I was like 15, 16, I got it. So my favorite kicks with the foam posits. I mean. Yeah. Everybody think that's new right now. That ain't new, man. I had all types no, of classics, man. Has been around for a while. For a long, long time. I used to, I used to always have the NBA jersey to match. You know, he, I had, was that, going, he had that Nike Nike Town hookup, man. I had that plug, but uh, I used to hate on you. But that was my man. favorite, man. That was my favorite sneaker. To, and you know what else I liked it a lot was the uh, the Air Max Two Ninety Fives. They were my favorite too. I didn't have many pairs of those, but when I did, I, I cherished those, man. I remember the phone pods when they first came out. I got a pair in high school. Um, shout out to Lewis, my boy Lou, who got them for me. Uh, the black ones. He had gotten the blue ones. And then I was like, damn, I want a pair of those. So he got, he got, he got two black ones, the pennies, and then uh, he gave me a pair. And then I ended up trading him for the blue ones at some point. I forgot what I traded him for, but I, I like the blue ones. The blue ones are the best. Those though. are the best ones. Those are the original ones. Yo, I used to get my, my phone posits when it was so easy to get. And Vim. Oh, yeah. VIM. I mean, I, you know, and Sportivo up on Knickerbocker. Yo, yo. It was, now it's so hard to get. You know what I mean? There was no lines back then. I no mean, lines. Obviously, if you were a sneakerhead back then and you wanted some exclusive shoes, you would you would know where to go. Or you exactly. would have some kind of connection. Yeah. But... Relatively, I mean, you you could you could get your hands on whatever sneakers you wanted, man. Did Absolutely. you ever wait on life any shoes though? Nah. The, the, you believe the, in that? Would you wait on life? Nah, 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 nah. Like not even. Like we're talking about the phone posits, and I remember a quick story. Like the all black on black, the first Tim Duncan's that came out. I was dying to get them, couldn't get them. Iran had a pair. Shout out to Iran. Shout out to sneakerhead. One of the original so, sneakerheads. Out so here. I was like, yo. I can't get them. And he's like, yo, I don't really like them. They look like space boots. And I said, I love them. I'm fire, though. I love them. So he's like, yo, you know what? Take them. Yeah. Just gives them to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, I got my black phone posits, Tim Duncan's. Yeah. But I never waited on online, man. Yeah, I ain't trying to wait on online. I mean, there was, uh, so the Air Max, um, the original Air Max came out last Saturday, the red. The red and white ones. Mm-hmm. I wanted a pair of them, but I wasn't going to wait in no line. You know? I really wanted a pair of them. Those were one of my favorite shoes, too. And then, so I tried to get them online, and they sold out, like, in five minutes. So it was, like, ah, pointless, man. You know, they, they were the phone posits, too. They were very uncomfortable basketball-wise. Though. Oh, whoa. Well, they were hard. They were, like, heavy on your feet and shit. They were super flat-footed. Plus, they were so cool, you didn't want to ruin them. That's what I'm saying. At first, <laughs> I was hesitant. I said, maybe they're uncomfortable because I ain't trying to ruin them. But I'm trying to play ball on these old things, but I really don't want to play ball on them. Right, right, so right. I'm, like, I'm, like, being easy. So you're not giving 100%. Exactly. And then I realized when I got a little older, and I, and I started playing ball with them, it like. Nah, he's horrible sneakers, man. Horrible. To play basketball in. Like, obviously, like, when it comes to sneakers, you know, uh, athletes, you know, going back to the mid-'80s, Michael Jordan, that he kind of revolutionized the, 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 the sneaker game, and that kind of put Nike on the map. Is there any athlete that you kind of admire in terms of their sneakers that you admire? Like, who's your favorite athlete when it comes to the sneakers? Is it Jordan's? Um, Penny, Barkley, Pippen. I mean, as far as fashion, it's always going to be Jordan. But my favorites, I think I think Penny is a little underrated when it comes to the shoe games in, ter- in terms of athletes. I think Jordan obviously started it all, right? And then I think Penny 
kind of maintain that that level in terms of you know not only was he one of the best players in the NBA but he was dropping some fresh shoes and he had those those dope commercials with Little Penny. Yeah, yeah, that so, was a, that was a, that was a good one. Yeah, that me, was creative. Yeah, it was very creative. Me, I used I used to you know I didn't buy many pair, but the Ewings were were, were kind of cool for me. You know, what I mean they they got different flavors now. But growing up, the Ewings, I had a pair. Cool. I had a pair too. I ain't gonna lie. And I used to, I used to like those, man. Was I was a big Knicks fan, so they came out with orange and blue. And at that time, I was straight New York Knicks. You know, I, mean? I still am, but right. it was like I'm really, I really, and, and, and that's that was my thing. Did you ever get into any kind of scuffle over some over some kicks or like whether somebody stepped on them or whether somebody tried to take them from off your feet, like any, any anything anything like that? Not, not nobody hurting us. Nobody was hurting us in high school. I did get into a scuffle, like a little, like oh, you stepped on me, and I try to ruin somebody's sneakers. And it was in junior high school. It was crazy because the Air Max ninety fives, but the older version, not the ninety five, not the lime green, the older ones, the like when we were still in junior high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still remember I'm chilling. My boy Nino, Ivan, and this kid named Gene comes. <laughs> just stepped on me. Boom. <laughs> I said, what the? <laughs> I just looked up. <laughs> yeah. So we all just stood shocked. So I pushed him. You know, ain't nobody snuffing That's nobody. That's a no right there, man. You can't just step on <clears throat> somebody's shoes. I got, I got a story like that. Um, actually, Lou, the same dude that got me the phone posits, I had the, I think it was... Uh, I think it was some dunks, or maybe like the Air Force Ones, the all white Air Force Ones. They were brand new. We were, it was after school, we were just hanging out in front of the school, and he walks up, and he stepped on me, right? And I'm like, yo, what are you doing? And then I looked down, and he had stepped on tar. I guess they were fixing the oh, street. Oh, man. And my shoe had tar on it, yo. I was, I mean, obviously, that he was, one, he was our boy, but like, that's, that's, that's those stupid games you played in high school, you know what I'm saying? I, I never had nobody, no, 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 no fight like that or no argument about sneakers. But I remember me, like around 12, 13 years old, my mom's bought me a pair of Etonics. I'm taking it way <laughs> back. And I told this story before, but this is a funny ass story. Some Etonics. And then um, I'm like, damn, I, I'm going to junior high school. I don't want these kicks, you know? And my sister was like, nah, just mommy bought you these sneakers. Wear these sneakers. I said, all right, cool. So I, these Etonics, I made a hole in them so I can get these Nikes I wanted. And, um, as I as I come back home, I said, "Ma, these sneakers are cheap. See, they got a hole in them. They, they got a hole real fast." But flip it, the teacher wrote a letter saying I made a hole in the sneakers with some scissors, which I did. Oh, <laughs> so, so my mom was like, "Oh, you lied. You know, blah blah blah. Now you gotta wait for a month." Then my sister caved in and got me some um some good Nikes, and that was that. The sneaker market is just supply and demand, but Nike has gotten very good at using supply, limited sneakers and the distribution of those sneakers to their own benefit. So it's really just supply. Sneakerheads joke as long as it's limited and Nike, they'll buy it. Shoes itself for $8,000 do so because they're very rare. It's no different than any other collectible market. Only this isn't a market at all. It's a false construct created by Nike, ingeniously created by Nike in the most positive sense to sell more shoes. Kicks now are very different. The kids. I saw this little skid with, with these uh, the Dominican comedians from Uptown or whatever, and one of them is walking out. They, they did a, like a throwback. One of them was walking out. So when he came out with the new Jordans, they all go, oh, you know, like all hype. 
Now they did nowadays. So he comes in, he's like, yo, I got the new nines. And they all go, yeah, I got them too. I got them too. So it's not like exclusive. Right, you know that's what I'm why saying? the sneaker culture has changed drastically where everyone gets their hands on their <clears> shoes, especially now with online. You can just, there's a whole different industry for, for resellers and, and, and sneakerheads who, who buy, you know, get all these kicks and resell them online. Like it's just doing research for this episode, man. I I found out a lot about sneakers and and how people and how people you know make a living off reselling their shoes, man. So it's it's definitely different in terms of the culture and the way people anyone can pretty much get a hand get, if they wanted to if they wanted to spend their money. So it's like a business now. Yeah, it is a business. It's a business. It's Absolutely, a business. you buy a pair of kicks. And you and, and you, you resell them, you get your money back and some. I, I, I'm not gonna say his name, but somebody that went to high school with us was in a little financial debt. He <laughs> he loved Jordans, <laughs> loved Jordans, and I still remember going with him to like cop Jordans, and he'd be like, "Well, you well you don't want to buy them." I was like, "Nah, I'd rather get three pairs of sneakers instead of one." So I'll cop Air Max, some classics. Uptowns, you, know, you can't never diss the uptowns. And he saw himself like in a little financial thing, and I was shocked that people was giving him nine hundred dollars, eight hundred dollars. Hell yeah, that's cheap too, son. Jordan's Hell on eBay. yeah, that's, but I'm that's, talking that's, about that's good. That's good. Years ago. Hell yeah, son. That's yeah, that's, that's, when, that's when I knew it was a trend. Nah, dude, you made money jumped, off that, bro. Should have jumped on it. And that's the thing; it's turned from a sneaker has gone from a culture to a trend to trendiness. You know what I'm saying? Um, but this is lines for it, you know. You gotta wait online. You gotta go online or pay extra for it. Mm -hmm. Like I remember one time, you gotta get uh, subscribe to like newsletters, yeah, and waiting lists, and yeah. There was a line Raffle. around the block one time Raffle. in Foot Locker. Yeah, one time was a line around the block in Foot Locker, and it's like hundreds, was hundreds of kids and the parents outside. And then you go two blocks down at a hotel, there was a job fair. No line of the job. <laughs> no line of the job. No line of the job. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I appreciate the dudes. I mean, because it's a hobby for some people, right? And, you know, I, I'm not going to knock anybody's hobby. So some people really take it seriously. It's like, a, you know, it's like collecting baseball cards. They, yeah. collect, they collect sneakers. You know, but I think nowadays, I think it's, it's, it's gone a bit overboard. And Nike plays a part in just exploiting the situation. Yeah. Where every Saturday, they drop... They drop a new deadline, a new shoe, yeah. a new, you know, new colorway to some pair of sneakers. You remember, you remember the Jordans was every six months. Every six right. months, yeah. At first it started almost every year. Right. Mm -hmm. Then it went from every year to like nine months. Maybe give and take. Then he decided to do it every year. Mm -hmm. Every six months, drop two pairs. This dude, now he's filthy dropping Jordans every other week. It might be more Nike doing that too, right? I mean, I mean, Nike controls yeah, pretty much ninety-eight percent of the sneaker, yeah. of the sneaker market, or maybe ninety-five percent. If Nike wanted to kill the resale market, they could do so tomorrow. All they have to do is release more shoes, but we certainly don't want them to. Nor is it in their best interest. That's because, unlike Apple, who will sell an iPhone to anyone who wants one, Nike doesn't make their money by just selling two hundred-dollar sneakers. They sell millions of shoes to millions of people for sixty dollars. And sneakerheads are the ones that drive the marketing and the hype and the PR and the brand cachet and enable Nike to sell millions of $60 sneakers. Like, all right, what's the biggest difference between a sneakerhead and just someone who, who just likes having a fresh pair of kicks on? The difference, be, oh, the difference between a, a sneakerhead, I, I'm, I'm just a person that likes to have a fresh pair of kicks on. So the sneakerhead will go out every weekend and get that kick Try to sell it or just have it in a box. Maybe wear it once. Mm -hmm. Me, 
I just like any type of sneaker. I, I, I like Nike. I get a lot of LeBrons. I've been getting a lot of LeBrons lately. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just like to look clean. That's I, me, man. I think what about you, Al? a sneakerhead is a hobby for him. For us, it's just more looking decent, looking fresh, feeling fresh. Yeah. A sneakerhead is going all out his way to get sneakers. Step on a sneakerhead and step on us, then you know the difference. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be like, ah, oh, it's cool. A sneakerhead might go crazy on you. But it's like... I don't know. I I I can't be a sneakerhead to yeah. take it like to wait online to do this. <laughs> Talk about you it's got the nines, the threes, the fours, the sevens. Nah, I can't do it's that. It's a big commitment. I think the biggest difference is when we pick our outfit out for whatever whatever we're doing. You know, going out or going to work. We start from you know the the top yeah. bottom. Yeah. Sneakerhead goes in his closet, That's a picks up his sneakers. <laughs> Gotta, and, and then, all right, what am I going to wear with these sneakers? Yeah, he picks up. <laughs> we pick out the outfit, then the shoes. Right. They pick out the shoes, right. then the outfit. That makes sense. That's dope. That is true. There That's you have dope. it, man. There you have it. That's, That's a sneakerhead for you, man. Yeah. All right, y'all. We'll be right back. The true definition of a sneakerhead is a person who collects, trades, or admires sneakers as a hobby. Sneaker collecting is so big, it even has its own day. November 5th is National Sneaker Day. I mean, that's not saying much these days given there's a national day for everything. There's even a day where people celebrate not wearing shoes. A day without shoes on May 12th. At SneakerCon in New York City last year, the most expensive kicks were the Nike LeBron 9s, the Watch of Thrones, who were going for about $5,000 or so. The most expensive kicks overall in 2016 were the Marty McFlys. The majority of them were given away in a raffle, with the rest being auctioned off for charity by Nike. The resale value for these bad boys? About $28,000. That's more than the cost for each of the top five best-selling cars in the US. The Honda Civic, Toyota Corolla, Toyota Camry, Honda Accord, and the Chevrolet Cruze. Who drives a Chevrolet Cruze? According to Forbes, sneaker culture fuels a $1 billion secondary market. That's a swoosh load of cash, all savvily manipulated by Nike. So the next time I drive by my local Foot Locker and see a bunch of teenage kids waiting on a three block long line just to buy the latest Jordans, I'll restrain myself from mocking them. Or from thinking to myself, look at these fools. Because those fools on that line, they might be purchasing something that's worth more than the car I'm driving. So there you have it. That's the end of the show. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for joining us on the Hail Caesar podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Elizabeth Samuelhack, for joining us. Um, if you if you reach this point and you like what you heard, I'm going to ask for a huge favor. No, it's not. It's not to subscribe or leave an iTunes review. Share the podcast with a friend. Help us grow our audience. So recommend it to a friend. Get them, get them to listen to the show either on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter at Hail Caesar Pod or on Instagram at the Hail Caesar Podcast. Thanks again and see you soon, guys. Peace.